0: Time Travelling Teamp, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha.
1: And I'm Petty. This week we're kicking off season nine with the return of a classic enemy in Day of the Daleks. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole.
0: We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story so to join the discussion you can check us out at Time Teamp that's T-I-M-E T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or you can email us at Time Travelling at Teamp for now, though, Patty, it is a new season. Can you give us our opening summary, please?
1: I can indeed, but before I do that, I watched Bedknobs and Broomsticks during the the week, and guess who I was reminded of? Who, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. So, yeah, that was very vague. Uh, when it got to the animated sequence with the king, I was reminded of Azal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I get it now. <laughs> Stop <Stuff>, dash ball
0: <laughs> Okay. That makes way more sense. Because you were saying yeah. I saw bed up to Bruce Six Here's I reminded of, and I'm now going down through like the entire character list being like um yeah. <laughs> uh I don't know.
1: Did you eat did you eat a portabello mushroom <laughs> during the week or something? <laughs> okay, now, now you're back to seriousness. Yeah. Episode one. At a manor in the English countryside, a man is working at his desk when he notices the curtains move due to the open window. He goes to close them and discovers a man in camouflage gear who throws him to the ground and prepares to shoot him. However, the assassin is encased in a sphere of golden light and then disappears from sight. The man's secretary rushes in after hearing his cries and stares in confusion as the man babbles about the mysterious intruder. At Unit HQ, the Brigadier is discussing the events at the manor with the Minister of Defence. The man who was attacked was Sir Reginald Styles a prominent representative in the UN. The Brigadier informs the Minister that he intends to send the Doctor to investigate. At that moment, the Doctor is attempting to bypass the remote control on the TARDIS's dematerialization circuit. Joe watches as he works and takes a look at some of his notes while he checks underneath the power console. She looks up when she hears the doors of the lab opening and is stunned to see both herself and the Doctor standing outside them. The other Doctor tells her not to worry, but is interrupted by his equally stunned counterpart, who demands to know how he got there. The Doctor says that two of him can't exist in the same space, and the other one tells him that things will soon sort themselves out. Suddenly, there is a flash of light and a puff of smoke from the power console, and the duplicate Doctor and Joe disappear into thin air. Joe asks what happened, but the Doctor says it would be difficult to explain, and tells him not to worry as it won't happen again. The Brigadier then enters and brings the Doctor up to speed on Sir Reginald. He says that he is a key figure in the current peace summit, and is the best candidate to try and bring the recently departed Chinese delegation back to the talks. He then tells him about the events at the manor, which is also the location for the peace conference. The doctor and Joe go with the brigadier to the manor and interview Sir Reginald and his secretary, Miss Paget. Sir Reginald seems to be in denial of what he saw and attributes it to a nightmare brought on by exhaustion from his work. The doctor notices a pair of muddy boot prints on the floor, but Sir Reginald brushes it off and says he must leave for the airport. Before he goes, he allows the brigadier to send his men out to search the grounds. Outside the manor, the assassin reappears in the same golden ball of light and starts to make his way towards the manor. However, he hears the sound of whistles and flees towards a nearby rail bridge. Once there, he is suddenly attacked by two large ape-like creatures in uniforms. They leave his body in the long grass and then enter the tunnel under the bridge. His body is later found by the unit troops and the doctor says that he is alive but in critical condition and Yates is dispatched to organize an ambulance. The brigadier notices his gun, which appears to be in an advanced design, and gives it to the doctor to examine it. Benton appears, carrying a small black box his men found in the tunnel. The Doctor opens it and notices the advanced circuitry inside. Meanwhile, the ape-like creatures are transported to a devastated city with alien spaceships flying overhead and enter a futuristic control room filled with human technicians and a man, who is the controller of the site, sitting in a chair in the centre of the room. They tell the controller they destroyed their target, but he says that they must track down the other members of his group and eliminate them as well. He then dismisses them. Back at the manor house, Sir Reginald enters his office and is startled to see the brigadier holding the assassin's gun. Clearly disturbed by both its presence and the news of its owner, he says he must leave for the conference and the brigadier insists that he take a unit escort. The doctor takes the weapon back to his lab and after running some tests, discovers it is an ultrasonic disintegrator and says it is far too advanced for the technology currently used on Earth. The doctor shows them the black box Benton found and says it is a form of time travel. He activates it and the box is suddenly covered in a golden light. At that moment, the assassin disappears from the ambulance carrying him into the hospital, leaving Benton stunned. He reports this to the brigadier who informs the doctor and Joe about what happened. The doctor says that the box's temporal circuit is overloaded, but says that whoever is trying to harm Sir Reginald will most likely try again and suggests to Joe that they should stay the night in the manor. Meanwhile, the activation of the box is registered in the control room by one of the technicians, but says that they are unable to get a specific lock on it, saying that they only learned that it was used in the 20th century. Suddenly, a Dalek appears and demands a report from the controller in charge. Later that night, the doctor is helping himself to supplies from the pantry, trying to keep a nervous Joe relaxed. Outside the manor, Yates and Benton are preparing their men for any attack. Benton goes in to get some food and startles Joe, who has gone to take a look around. She brings him something to eat, but he is sent to check on the sentries by Yates, who then takes the food after he is gone, quoting the military axiom that rank has its privileges. Joe returns to the doctor and admits that her nervousness is from the doctor's analogies of ghosts when he and the brigadier were discussing the strange happenings around the manor. He tells her to go and get some rest. Meanwhile, two men and a woman, dressed in the same camouflage gear as the assassin, appear near the rail bridge. One of the men starts to leave, but the woman says that they will wait until morning before going anywhere. In the morning, they kill a pair of unit sentries as they approach, and then move off. At Unit HQ, an emergency broadcast airs saying that the failure of the conference has pushed the world to the brink of war as China prepares to take on the forces of the United Nations. The broadcast also reveals that several countries in South America have used the tensions to launch their own assaults on their rival nations. Back at the manor, the trio approach the house and one of them enters the study when he sees the black box the doctor was working on glowing. He goes to retrieve it but is stopped by a returning doctor who incapacitates him with ease. He begs the doctor to turn off the box saying that they will all die if he doesn't. The activation is again noticed in the control room and the controller reports this to the Daleks who order the controller to have whoever is using the box exterminated. Episode 2 The other two assassins enter the room with Joe as their hostage and the woman orders the doctor to turn off the box. He does so and the control room loses the signal. The controller goes to report it to the Daleks, who order him to continue the search. In the manor, the woman tells the doctor he is to be executed for his crimes, but refuses to elaborate on what they are. She reveals that they think he is Sir Reginald, and he tells her and the others about the case of mistaken identity, using a copy of the morning paper to confirm his claims. The two men, named Boaz and Shura, insist he is lying and urge the woman, who was called Anat, to kill him. However, she refuses to do so and sends Bo- Boaz to keep a lookout while she questions the doctor. The Doctor tells him that he has been waiting for them to arrive so he can question them about where and when they came from. However, they are interrupted when Boaz warns them about the arrival of Benton and Yates, who have gone to look into the house for the missing sentries. The trio take the Doctor and Joe with them and bring them down into the coal cellar whilst Yates and Benton search the manor. Joe tries to call out, but Boaz muffles her. Yates calls for the Brigadier to inform him, but the Brigadier hurriedly tells him to search again as he is currently talking to the Minister of Defence about the potential conflict ahead. After Benton and Yates leave, Annette tells Zeris to tie up the hostages and once they are done, to go back up into the main house. The Doctor and Joe manage to loosen the gags around their mouths and they discuss the nature of the trio and their intentions. Joe starts to work on freeing the Doctor and he says based on their weaponry they are from the 22nd century and wonders why they have come back in time and what they want with Sir Reginald. Joe says the ropes are too difficult to undo and so they resign themselves to wait for a rescue whilst continuing to discuss the nature of the trio. Joe thinks their actions are tuggish whilst the doctor thinks that they are more than that due to their almost fanatical desire to change history. In the 22nd century, the controller reports that they've been unable to track down the exact location of the signal. The head dial cuts across him, saying the signal will most likely have gone to the same location as where the first assassin went. It orders the controller to send security forces to the location, and also informs him that a time vortex magnetron has been set up so that anyone using the black box will be brought to the control center instead of its normal origin point. The controller questions as to whether that is a good use for it, as those using the box will most likely realize that they have been tracked, but the Daleks tell him to obey as they activate the magnetron. Meanwhile, back in the manor house, Annette attempts to call through to her own base, but the signal is blocked by the magnetron. Boaz says that they should carry out their mission and wait to kill Sir Reginald, but Annette says that they need new orders as the situation has changed. Shura says that he will go back to the rail bridge as the signal might be better there. He makes his way back to the rail bridge, carefully avoiding the unit patrols in the area. Once there, he checks on a hidden device before putting it back. He then tries to radio through to his base, but he is attacked and wounded by one of the ape-like creatures. He shoots the creature after a brief struggle, completely disintegrating it, and then rushes back to the house. At Unit HQ, Benton and Yates inform the Brigadier about the failure of the searches. This frustrates him further as he reveals that Sir Reginald was successful in re-establishing talks, and they will be held at the manor the following night. He tries calling through to the manor, and Annette tells Boaz to bring the doctor and Joe up so they can answer the call. In the cellar, the doctor has explained the rules of time travel and the effects it has on history when Boaz arrives and orders them upstairs. The doctor answers the phone and tells them that everything is okay. When the brigadier mentions that Sir Reginald is returning to the manor, he tries to tell him not to allow it, but is stopped by Annette, and so he uses the coded message of Tell it to the marines, to the brigadier before hanging up. Realising that something is wrong, the Brigadier orders the jeep to be prepared to take him to the manor. Annette and Boaz are delighted to hear that Sir Reginald is coming, and as they gloat, Joe manages to slip free from her ropes. She picks up the black box and threatens to smash it unless she and the doctor are released. Annette says that it is pointless, as that was the one used by the earlier assassin, and that they have their own one to let them go back. Boaz threatens to kill her, and the Doctor tells her to put it down, but it suddenly starts to glow, and Joe is transported to the control room in the 22nd century, where she is captured by the ape-like creatures. The Controller dismisses them, and tells Joe that they are called Ogrons, a primitive species from planets in the outlying solar systems that they use as security personnel. He tries to put her at ease by letting her sit down, and tells her that she is lucky to be alive, as the trio are deadly fanatics. He tells her that the Doctor is at great risk, as they and their colleagues are responsible for several atrocities. He offers to save him, but needs the exact location and date in order to extract him. He sends her away to rest, but before she goes, he asks where the trio arrived and she tells him about the discovery of the first black box near the rail bridge. Once she is gone, the controller relays the information to the head Dalek, who says it will lead a security force to the rail bridge to ambush the trio, who are actually part of a guerrilla faction. Back in the manor house, the doctor is placed back in the cellar but manages to get free and makes his way back up to the study where Annette and Boaz are currently engaged in a firefight with a squad of Ogrons that have just appeared. Boaz tries to attack the Doctor, but he's easily knocked back, and Annette escapes with him. An Ogron crashes through the window of the study, and the Doctor manages to disarm it, but it forces him out of the study to the grounds outside. He comes face-to-face with two Ogrons as they pursue the gorillas, and he is forced to shoot one of them. The other one is killed by the Brigadier manning the machine gun on his jeep. The Doctor briefly tanks him before taking off in the jeep to pursue the gorillas. He follows them to the rail bridge and comes face to face with a Dalek. Episode 3 The Doctor flees down a side tunnel as the Dalek takes off in pursuit. He encounters Boaz and Anat, who warn him to stay back, but he ends up getting caught in the time field that returns him to the 22nd century. Once they've gathered themselves, the Doctor mentions his history with the Daleks and asks them the best way to find Joe. Boaz refuses to help, but Annette says that they must do something to help. Their discussion is interrupted when they hear a squad of Ogrons approaching and they flee down the tunnels, separating to avoid capture. The Doctor avoids his pursuer and makes his way up to the surface. He carefully avoids the patrolling Ogrons and makes his way towards a group of buildings in the distance. In the command center, the Controller reveals that the search of the tunnels has yielded no results and he is berated by the Daleks. He blames the limited intelligence of the Ogrons on the failure, as well as the fact that the Daleks underestimate the tenacity of the Guerrillas. He requests to be allowed to recruit more human personnel, but he is refused, being told that humans are untrustworthy. Before he leaves, he mentions Joe talking about the Doctor and states that he has arrived in their time zone. The Daleks order him to be found immediately and exterminated. At that moment, the Doctor has actually made it to one of the buildings, but he does notice that he is being monitored by security cameras. His presence is related to Controller, who tells the Daleks that he will be arrested soon. He goes to leave to organise the arrest, but he is stopped by the Daleks, who tell him that the production figures from the slave workforce have decreased. He tries to tell them that the figures will be met by the next cycle, but the head Dalek informs him that the target has been increased. He objects, saying that many of the workers will die, but he is ignored and dismissed. He then returns to the control room and asks for the production figures from the various factories to be sent to him for personal review. In the Gorilla hideout, Annette and Boaz are bickering over her decision to return to the future. They are stopped when their leader, Monia, arrives and he tells them about Joe's arrival in the command centre and says it will only be a matter of time before the doctor is caught as well. His words prove true when the doctor is caught by an Ogron whilst he is spying on one of the factory assembly lines in the building he entered. In his private quarters, the controller is treating Joe to a banquet of food. She thanks him for his kindness but asks him to help return her to the past. He says that his men are working on it, saying that it was a fluke that she arrived safely. He tells her about the sight of the doctor with the gorillas and she offers to help him find the doctor. The controller tells her that it would be too dangerous for her as gorillas might think that she is a traitor. A message is brought informing them that the doctor has been found. The doctor is actually brought to a jail cell where he is questioned by a human interrogator. He refuses to answer any questions and demands to know information about Joe. They are interrupted by another human overseer who says that he will take over the interrogation. Once the interrogator and his old guards are gone, The Overseer asks which guerrilla faction he belongs to, revealing himself as a double agent. The Doctor tries to explain that he is not a guerrilla, but they are interrupted by the sudden arrival of the Controller. The Controller apologises for his rough treatment and has him taken to see Joe. The Doctor's initial joy is replaced with weariness when the Overseer subtly shakes his head as the Controller sweet-talks the Doctor away. Once they are alone, the Controller demands to know why the production quotas aren't being met in the Overseer's area. He says that if the quarters aren't met, then the Overseer and his family will suffer for it. Once the Controller leaves, the Overseer radios the Gorilla Hideout and reveals the capture of the Doctor. However, before he can say any more, he is attacked by an Ogron. The Controller treats the Doctor and Joe to a traditional 20th century banquet. Joe seems to be enjoying her time in the future, but the Doctor questions the idyllic narrative the Controller spins versus what he has seen since he arrived. The Controller tries to pawn off the factory as a rehabilitation centre for hardened criminals, but the Doctor is sceptical due to the age ranges of the people he saw in there. Joe chides the Doctor for his rudeness, saying the gorillas would have killed him, but the Doctor questions their motives, and he also questions the Controller of the need of the Ogrons in order to keep things so peaceful. The Doctor demands to know who is really in charge of it, but the Controller leaves, saying that he has business to attend to. After he goes, Joe gives up to the Doctor, but he tells her that the Daleks are the ones who are in charge and the controller is just their puppet. As they speak, they are unaware that they are being watched by the Daleks who say that they will run a test to see if he is actually the Doctor as his appearance has changed since their last encounter. The Doctor and Joe then escape by incapacitating their Ogron guard and then flee on the guard's motor trike. Unfortunately, they are caught by the faster Ogrons. Their capture is reported to the Gorilla Hideout and against Boaz's objections, Mania says that they will go rescue them. Meanwhile, the Doctor is strapped into a machine that scans his brain and projects his previous incarnations onto a screen. Confirming that he is their sworn enemy, the Daleks prepare to exterminate him. Episode 4 The Controller intervenes, saying that the Doctor can give them information about the gorillas. He insists upon interrogating the Doctor himself, telling the Daleks that their methods could kill him before he reveals anything. He says he will use Joe as an incentive to make the Doctor talk, and has her sent for The Daleks inform the revived Doctor that they have mastered their own time travel technology and used it to conquer Earth at a time before he defeated them in their original invasion. They intend to use their new mastery to conquer the universe throughout all time. The Controller then takes the Doctor away to his quarters, where Joe is waiting, and he begs him to reveal what he knows about the Gorilla's plans, so he can save both himself and Joe. The Doctor says that the Daleks will kill him no matter what he says, but the Controller insists that the Daleks can be reasoned with. The Doctor brands him as a traitor for his assistance towards the Daleks, but the Controller recounts his motivations for helping them. He tells them that the world descended to an all-out global war at the end of the 20th century, and over the next 100 years, 7 eighths of the world population died, with the survivors being forced to live underground. The Daleks then arrived and took control, using certain humans to help control the human workforces. The Doctor says he is still a traitor, and even though he claims to have made life somewhat bearable for humanity, he would have been better suited to helping the guerrillas fight back against the Daleks. The controller says their efforts are wasted and that the rebellion will fail. Outside, the rebels have launched an assault on the factory and Boaz is killed by a bomb he used on a Dalek while he was about to kill a gnat. Mania urges the rest of the onto to the command room as they eliminate the organ security troops. They successfully take control of the command center and rescue the Doctor and Joe. Mania prepares to kill the controller, but the Doctor stops him, saying that the Daleks are their real enemy. Mania reluctantly agrees and they flee, leaving the controller perturbed. Back at the gorilla hideout, Monia and Annette are filling the Doctor and Joe in about why they went back in time in the first place. According to their surviving history books, Sir Reginald lured the delegates to the peace conference and then blew them up, accidentally killing himself as well, presumably due to a faulty timer on the bomb. Realising that the rebellion was doomed to fail, they stole the plans for the Daleks' time machines and made their own rudimentary versions in order to go back and stop Sir Reginald before he could carry out his plan. Monia then says that they rescued the Doctor and Joe because they are enemies of the Daleks, and the Doctor will be the best person to go back in time and kill Sir Reginald. The Doctor refuses to murder someone, even if it means saving millions of lives, due to the uncertain nature of the history books. Jo finds it hard to believe that Sir Reginald would be capable of such a heinous act, and the Doctor agrees with her, saying his obstinate nature is not a malicious one. He then asks if any of the gorillas are still back in the past, and Annette says that Shure is still unaccounted for, as they presumed him to be dead. The Doctor then asks if they brought any explosives back into the past with them, and Annette confirms that they did. The Doctor then reveals that the guerrilla's actions have actually created a temporal paradox, as by going back to kill Sir Reginald, they have actually set in motion the events that created their own timeline. Back in the 20th century, Yates reports to the Brigadier that there's still no sign of the Doctor and Joe, and the Brigadier tells him to search again using whatever resources he needs. He then receives a message informing him about the imminent arrival of Sir Reginald and the delegates for the peace talks. Near the manor, the wounded Shura emerges from a nearby cluster of trees and makes his way into the cellar via the rear entrance. Once inside, he starts to prepare his bomb. In the command center, the controller is being berated by the Daleks for his failures and is threatened with extermination, but he asks for one more chance to recapture the Doctor. He is given the one last chance and he goes to prepare an ambush at the rail bridge. The Doctor and Drew are escorted to the tunnels beneath the rail bridge by the gorillas, but once they go down into the tunnels, they are apprehended by a squad of Ogrons. And the controller. The doctor says that he knows how to change the past, and the controller, intrigued by this, dismisses the Ograns and hears him out. The controller then lets him go, thanking the doctor for making the gorillas spare his life. He then returns to the Daleks to report their capture, but he is betrayed by the interrogator who followed him into the tunnels and witnessed him letting the doctor and Joe go. Taking solace in the fact that he may have helped in stopping the Daleks from conquering the earth in the first place, he resigns himself to his death. Once he is killed, the Daleks appoint the interrogator to replace him, and then organise an assault party to go back in time to stop the Doctor. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Joe arrive back in the 20th century, and they are met by Benton and his men, who take them back to the manor just as Sir Reginald and the delegates arrive for the peace talks. The Doctor rushes inside and instructs the Brigadier to take Sir Reginald and the delegates to safety. Sir Reginald refuses to leave, but the Doctor ignores him and tells the Brigadier to use force if he has to. He then rushes down to the cellar to find Shura. Meanwhile, an assault party of Daleks and Ogrons have emerged from underneath the rail bridge and engage the unit forces guardian, killing several of them. Benton radios to Yates and tells him that they can't hold their ground, and the Brigadier uses this to take command and he f- forces Sir Reginald and the others to leave. The Dalek forces advance on the manor, being slowed by the mortar and heavy weapons fire from the retreating unit forces. Joel rushes down to the cellar and tells the Doctor and Shura that the Daleks have reached the house, which helps the Doctor convince Shura that killing Sir Reginald won't help matters. Shura then tells him to leave, saying that he will blow up the Daleks once they enter the house. He informs him that he can't set a fuse on the bomb due to the fact that it is made of Dalekanium, a highly volatile and unstable compound that is the only thing effective against the Daleks' armour, and therefore he will have to sacrifice himself. The Doctor and Joe leave and inform the Brigadier to pull all his men back to allow the Daleks into the house. Once inside, the Daleks search for Sir Reginald so they can kill him to preserve the timeline, but Shura blows up the house. The explosion is witnessed by everyone, and Sir Reginald vows to make the peace talks a success. The Doctor and Joe share a cryptic message about seeing what would happen if he fails. End of the story. So, I think it is time to go over to the trivia spot, but before we do that, I actually read the novelization of this way 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 back when i started my secondary level uh, education i actually uh, read this on a school tour and i had lots of people asking me what the hell i was reading (laughs) because the book is actually called the book is actually called day of the ogrons or day of the ogrons
0: so actually a lot of people first discovered this story through the book Hmm. and when it eventually came to be released on VHS and stuff, there was thoughts. And I'll get to that in a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, how about we go back to the start?
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll start from the top. So, the air date for Day of the Daleks was the 1st of January to the 22nd of January, 1972. The
1: writer... That, uh, sorry to cut across. Hmm? Would that effectively make this the very first New Year's special?
0: It's the start no, of new it wasn't a special. It was just the start of the new season.
1: Yeah, but no, like um, the season twelve, so Jodie's second season, technically that started on New Year's Day as well as a sort of a season start slash special.
0: Well, yeah, but this wasn't. a yeah. thing. but then so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no.
1: yeah, I know. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, the writer for this story wasn't Terry Nation, so. Terry was unable to write the script. He was really busy working on the ITV series, The Persuaders. So instead, the writer for the story is a man named Lewis Marks. This is the second of four stories written by Lewis. We previously saw his work in Planet of the Giants, which you and I were discussing offline a second ago.
2: Yeah.
0: We'll see his work again in Planet of Evil and The Mask of Mandragora. So an interesting collection there. with some of my favorites.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The director of this story is Paul Bernard. So This is the first of three stories directed by Paul. We'll see his work again in The Time Monster and Frontier in Space. Paul passed away back in 1997. The working title for this story were, there were a number of them. The Ghost Hunters was like the original one. Then there was Years of Doom. The Time Warriors, which clearly got repurposed later. The Day of the Daleks. And Ghosts. The reason why only one of those mentions the word Daleks (laughs) is because when Louis Marx submitted his original story, it didn't mention the Daleks at all. But Barry wanted to bring the Daleks back. Originally, there was talk of that Barry would actually write the story himself. Obviously, they knew Terry wasn't going to be available and Terry gave his blessing whatever. Originally, it was maybe going to be Barry himself who was going to write it with his writing partner that we discussed last time uh under the name of guy leopold but that would have been later on at the back of the season and barry really wanted to start the season sort of with a bang so they decided yeah. to bring it up and it was Terrence Dix who suggested that the story that was submitted by lewis would be a good one to add the daleks into so the story was pretty much the same and terence was like well we'll just have the controller not be the ultimate bad guy. He's a puppet of the Daleks. It's fairly easy to insert them in and it wouldn't take too much work. Now, I mentioned that one of the working titles is The Day of the Daleks. So, the on-screen title of this is Day of the Daleks with only one the in the middle. The original VHS and the Laserdisc called it The Day of the Daleks with two thes. I think this is the problem that a lot of fans have with a lot of... And I even did it a second ago. We're so used to the word the appearing in Doctor yeah. Who titles. For example, Lewis's previous story is Planet of Giants. Not what I have always called it, which is...
1: Planet of, Planet of the Giants. Planet
0: of the Giants. There is no the. So <clears throat> this even carries over into like the published media.
1: And it's really annoying when you're doing like a quiz and like you're kind of going, no, I know the fucking story. It's the three-parter that was actually, F four-parter that was edited down. I know it is Planet of the, oh, it's Planet of Giants, right, Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. So Day of the Daleks marks the return of the Daleks after about five years. And this is also their first appearance on TV in colour. We'd obviously seen them in colour in the non-canonical Doctor Who movies that you and I previously reviewed. Mm-hmm. Go back and check out the sabbatical. Or the sabbaticals? Go back and check out the <laughs> ramblings, ramblings on those. I was stealing mission logs. And their thing isn't even sabbatical. It's supplemental. Whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Go back and watch the... Uh, fuck, I we we'll cut this entire section. Fuck it. <laughs>
1: to be fair, we were on a sabbatical when those were released.
0: We were. Fuck yeah. it, I'll leave it in. Go back and listen to yeah. the ramblings where we talk about those yes. things. Now, both John and Katie describe this story as kind of the low point of their Doctor Who experience, one of the main complaints was just how unbelievable the Dalek attack on the house was. With John estimating that there was two Daleks, there was three, that mm-hmm. uh, they could not have launched a fearsome final battle. Also, we considered the Ogrons had to kind of keep pace with the Daleks, and like I watched the making of for this story i watched it on the dvd last night and hmm. clearly everyone knew that it wasn't best done like you look at some of the ogrons, and some of them are really into it and some of them are just looking around going what am i doing
1: yeah do you know like it's i it, i have thoughts about it for my overall but compared to some of the other like action sequences we've seen with daleks en masse yeah, yeah, this is one of the poorer ones. And
0: the thing is, most people had first discovered this story, like post transmission, pre VHS, through the book, which was written by Terence, I believe, which described the final battle in a final battle <laughs> sort yeah. of way. And so, when to entertain the company that does the DVDs, they were concerned that what they paid for didn't really match up with what fans expected from having read the book. So they actually did a couple of reshots kind of of bits for the DVD release. And they also redubbed the Daleks with Nicholas Briggs, who has done all most of the Dalek voices in New Who. and um, he does he's one of the producers over Big Finish. Very, very involved in Doctor Who these days. Yeah. The original Dalek voice actors who are Oliver Gilbert and Peter Messalina, um Obviously, it's been five years since the Daleks were on screen. They'd never done a Dalek voice before. And I think there's some of the Dalek voices that are still them on the DVD. Because they sound very...
1: Unsure of themselves.
0: Yeah. They're very wrong. The guys did not find the portrayal well. And they were not used after this. After this, they went back to using Michael Wisher. And, you know, that was it from, from then on. I
1: watched this, I think, before the 2011 DVD release uh mm. so like i didn't see any of those like reshot se- sequences like i saw i saw them like when i scanned through a mm. different copy but um yeah in terms of like yo know, the comments about to entertain and you know expectations versus reality i do have thoughts on that as well from my remembrance of the book
0: yeah the the book really big this up in a big way and if you were comparing them, and it'll be interesting to see how this if this plays in at all into your overall score. If you experience the book first, is this a letdown as a story in comparison? So maybe the effects are a letdown because budget or whatever, but I'm curious to see in your overall if it's a letdown as a story in comparison.
1: And it, especially seeing as how, because remember, Colony in Space, I had read that before I saw it. Mm. And I think I said that I thought the television version worked better than the book. So we'll see now if it's the same here.
0: Yeah. So the mind analysis machine is an interesting thing. Mm. But we'll see kind of iterations of it almost later on. Um, but this is the first time we see an image of Patrick Troughton since his departure. We also see an image of William Hartnell. Um, but his image was last seen in Power of the Daleks when Patrick is looking in the mirror to see what he's regenerated into or whatever. Episode 4 was originally meant to include a conversation or a confrontation between the Doctor and the Daleks. Where they kind of explain, you know in Evil of the Daleks, there was this whole thing about introducing the human factor. And the Daleks were like super weird at the end of it. They weren't like vicious monsters or whatever. So there was meant to be a part in episode 4 where the Daleks in episode 4 explained how all the ones with the human factor had been killed off. And how they got basically from evil of the Daleks to here? <laughs> yeah, because <I> like, <laughs> what the hell happened there? Because
1: I was watching at one point, kind of going, "So you're not going to examine the, you know, the fallout of what appears to be your own shoddy handiwork? <laughs> you assumed that they were gone for good."
0: Yeah, so that was meant to be covered, but it was edited out because the episode was running long. Hmm. Um, and again, I'm curious like you you've read the book, and I, you may not have read it in a while. I'm curious if that's in the book.
1: Um, from my memory I haven't read that book in a very long time because I believe I gave you that book
0: hmm I will check the
1: book yeah I think I believe it is sitting in one of your bookshelves
0: <laughs> is it yep I literally just redid my target books yesterday
1: No, these one the, the cover for this one and the colony in space they're not the classic white target novelization books they're black cover books
0: oh maybe i put them somewhere else i will check mm. irrelevant mm-hmm. moving on in the original script the ogrons were never named and they weren't really described very well either they were just monster <laughs> like they, there was a monster <laughs> and, and that's what they were um it was actually barry letts who came up with the idea of ogron because he kind of mentioned that they looked a bit like ogres and they're oh ogre ogron there we go um This is the first story we see where the doctor interacts with another version of themselves.
1: I have like a weird Mandela effect about this story because I Mm. was convinced, convinced that the story comes full circle and Joe and the doctor return.
0: It does in the book because it did in the original script yeah I was like, and then they cut it out. i was like
1: i, I hear this weird because like i remember like the, they go back and they see their previous selves and the previous selves are the ones that disappear and they then walk into the fucking the lab
0: yeah no in the book i think that was left in and in the original script there was meant to be that whole thing coming full circle but it was kind of decided i think it was paul bernard kind of went but we've done this already Do you know, like, we don't need to do the scene again from the other side. That's fucking not needed. Um, Joe's reference to September the 13th in episode two. That was a bit of an in-joke. That was the day they started filming on location. (laughs)
2: So
0: that's the date they picked. This is the first Dalek story since the Daleks to not feature a change in the main cast. Either addition or subtraction.
1: Yeah, because I suppose at the end of the midmakers, Makers, would have been considered to have been a main cast member. Yep. Despite your thoughts on the... <laughs> yeah, she would have been... Cons- yeah, because I was going to take DMP. No. But, um, justice for Brett. <laughs> well, clearly, now the break has gotten justice for Brett here.
0: <laughs> yes, he has. <laughs> Go, Alistair. Yeah. Um... One thing you may have noticed as well is apparently in the novelization, the gold Dalek is replaced by a black Dalek. Though
2: hmm.
0: so there is still a gold Dalek, but he's just a black Dalek superior. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, <coughs> motorized tricycle?
1: Okay, that is a very confusing scene because is, are they meant to portray like the Ogrons as being really fast or... Or is the bike just actually really shit?
0: The bike, the bike is really shit. The bike is really shit. So <sighs> that was John's idea. So and people know this about John Pertwee. John Pertwee loved anything with a motor on it. He loved cars. He loved um, planes. He loved speedboats. He loved hovercraft, like the you know the the hovercraft from the seventies. And so he had seen this motorized tricycle which is uh, that's all i'm going to call it i'm not going to call it like a 3 wheeler motorbike because that's not what it is it is essentially a motorized tricycle Mm. and he thought it'd be great to include it and they, they liked indulging his little whims like that because it kind of played into who his doctor was and stuff so they put it in um now john described it as one of the most dangerous stunts that he insisted on doing i think that may have been a bit of a Sarcastic statement because according to Barry Letts, the thing went about three miles an hour and the Ogrons could have caught up to it by walking.
1: Like, I'd, see, I think it was probably like at some points it did look like it was off to topple over.
0: Oh, it was. Uh, and, like, and Katie Manning kind of said that, like, only the fact that like John rode motorcycles and Katie was used to being a passenger, that they knew how to correctly move their bodies on a vehicle like that to not topple. But it was moving about three miles an hour.
1: I and I can empathize because like I was kicked off a quad bike. I was on a school tour and we were being shown how to ride quad bikes, and I was kicked off it because I accidentally pulled a wheelie by re- revving too much.
0: Yeah. So the thing is that like it only goes by three miles an hour. Like Barry Letts was basically saying that like it was a bad idea to include it, but you know John liked it, so fuck it. But it meant the Ogrons had to deliberately run slowly. <laughs> like bear in mind, like Google Maps um puts average walking speed at a twenty minute mile. Mm -hmm. and this thing went roughly three miles an hour which is if you divide it down a 20 minute one this thing went walking speed yeah and those poor fuckers had to pretend to be running after it (laughs) and oh no i didn't catch it (laughs) um last thing and i don't know a lot about this and patty maybe you do because you're a bit of a history buff compared to me uh lewis marx was heavily influenced apparently by the six days war between egypt and israel i don't know a whole lot about that
1: i don't know a huge part about it either because like it's one area that i see i work for an israeli company so and they do have observances and they mention stuff about this and i'm like i feel like i should know more about this (laughs) but there's actually one historical thing in here that i think is like quite possibly the most british thing the show has done so far.
0: Oh yeah, what's that?
1: Uh it's when he calls the controller a, a traitor and then he calls him a Quisling. Um, what like, the hell is that? A Quisling is a term uh from World War II Um basically in Norway, the I think he was like he was the head of like the fascist party in Norway. Helped the Nazis take over and his name was Vidkun Quisling. Mm. And he was the head of the puppet government spearheaded by the Nazis. So his name, because he had helped the Nazis take over their, his own country, his name became synonymous with like treachery. So like you'd see like in a lot of old World War II movies, whenever someone's, you know, accused of being like a Nazi sympathizer or a Nazi spy, they're called the Quisling. Now, it, apparently it's kind of synonymous, you know, with the word treachery even now. But I'm like, the guy said that seven-eighths of the world's population were eliminated in this big war. And we know that the history books are are very few and far between. Like, I, I don't know. That that would be like me calling someone from America a langer. You know, they, they just have no concept of what the word means. So yeah. it's like, how dare you? Should I be insulted by this?
0: It also seems like a weird word for the doctor to use.
1: Yeah. It, like, like it, it, you'd it, get maybe
0: like, Joe using it.
1: Yeah. But no. But yeah. again, it's like. It really kind of, it really does date the show. <laughs> it's like it is very British in its thing.
0: Yeah, I, I, I literally had in my notes what the hell is that, and I was asking you. Yeah. So on to our cast. So as Sir Reginald Styles, we've Wilfred Carter. This is his only Doctor Who appearance. His non-Who credits include softly, softly, Z Cars, Emergency war Ten, and No Hiding Place. Wilfred passed away in 1998. As Boaz, we have Scott Fredericks. This is the first of two appearances for Scott. We'll see him again in the Image of the Fend or in Image of the Fendal. His non Who credits include Rock Rivals, The White Rabbit, Crossroads, Dixon of Dot Green, Blake Seven, and again Seth cars. Scott passed away in 2017.
1: He was also in the Dad's Army movie, the original one. Oh. He plays a Nazi pilot that attempts to take over Wilmington, on sea.
0: Do you remember a couple of weeks ago my mom contributed to our podcast <laughs> through her random comments? Yes. She had met. I was saying that we kind of joked that we'd one day do a mash podcast, yeah. and one was like, "Oh, like Patty is, like would totally be like, the type of person who like be into Dad's Army and stuff." I'm like, yes, yes, he is, <laughs> <laughs> and you have just proved my mother right. Shura is played by Jimmy Winston. This is Jimmy's again only Doctor Who credit. His non Who credits include Doctor in the House, UFO. Justice and the Sweeney. Jimmy passed away just in September of last year. Anat is played by Anna Barry. This is her only on-screen appearance, though she has done a couple of audio stories as well. Her non-Who credits include The Further Adventure of the Musketeers, General Hospital, Your Highness, Doctors, and she was apparently in Deathly Hollows Part 1. She was a muggle. Oh. Um. Lastly, as the controller, we have Aubrey Woods. This is Aubrey's only Doctor Who appearance. His non who credits include Bleak House, Wuthering Heights, Up Pompeii, Blake Seven, and the one that I think most people would recognize him from, yeah. maybe just most people like us, is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The good one, not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the shit one.
1: Who works for the Daleks? <laughs> takes away your rights? <laughs> forces all humanity to put up a fight, the controller man. <laughs> The controller man I just made that up on the spot very good, <laughs> Thank, very good. Bravo. Thank you. yes that's right he is the candy man from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory so possibly making him even creepier
0: yeah a little bit we'll get to him later yeah, yeah and thus endeth our cast and thus endeth our trivia <laughs>
1: So, once again, thank you for the trivia spot. You're welcome. And now we're going to go over to the character discussion component of this podcast. So, uh, as always, we have the Doctor, we have the Companions, we have Prominent Characters, and we also have the Villains of the Piece. Now, even though this thing is stacked with characters, we've only have the Doctor, Joe and the Brig for the Companions, uh, the Gorilla Faction, and the Controller for the Prominent Characters and the Ogrons and the Daleks for the villains. do we have anything from our uh, man Benton and his gal Yates, or his his gal Friday Yates, or Sir Reginald?
0: Yeah, I thought Sir Reginald would have more to do. So,
1: So did I. And, like, see, again, bringing from my memory of the book, I felt like there was a lot of stuff here that was like through the me- like we've talked before about like you know stuff that's expanded upon through the medium of uh, novelization mm. and i think yeah having read the book first there was some stuff that i was kind of missing in terms of like character moments and things like that so like that's why you know sir reginald and uh Be- benton and yates aren't as prominent as they would have been in the novel mm. and why the the gorillas have all been kind of lumped together yeah so we start off with the, the doctor
0: yeah, clearly this doctor has moved on from asking for a glass of milk at the OK Corral. Yeah. That's something that actually is explored a bit on the DVD. You know, some people consider it a bit controversial that the doctor was drinking wine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Terence Dix didn't really care. As far as Terence was concerned, each doctor is different. When you regenerate, your preferences change. Um, but apparently barry didn't like it too much to see the doctor drinking or associating the doctor with alcohol just because it was targeted at a young audience Hmm. um but terrence is kind of like he drinks now
1: yeah because like if you remember like the first doctor smoked a pipe and then that was phased out and then like from what we saw the second doctor had no voices bar maybe playing the recorder at inappropriate (laughs) times
0: And being a sexist prick, half the time,
1: yeah, but it's funny to think like that. The uh, the third doctor, like he's so very famous for like his velvet smoking jackets, ne- never see but a cigarette, <laughs> Cigar. yeah. And, yeah. That, and
0: that's the thing, that's one of the reasons why like, Barry didn't really care about the drinking too much. So it kind of played in with the whole dandy, yeah,
1: yeah, the character debiter, that, that,
0: yeah. That, um, that John was creating. But in terms of the doctor himself, right, that was just an observation, yeah, I saw, um, particularly because the other day was the anniversary of that historical event. the The okay girl all right last week apparently it was the anniversary of that Hmm. or earlier this week Anyway, the thing i like about the doctor in this story is i love how he doesn't jump to any conclusions about the human characters Mm -hmm. even the controller to a certain extent he doesn't he challenges him but he doesn't condemn him Mm -hmm. so he challenges the controller's beliefs that there's nothing better that he could do he challenges the controller's beliefs that like the daleks can't be defeated and he questions what what the controller has benefited from over the years Mm -hmm. at the detriment of the rest of humanity but he doesn't condemn the man either do you know he won't let the gorillas kill him and similarly with the gorillas joe is very quick and understandably so to assume that the guerrillas are nothing but terrorists. Do mm-hmm. you know? Um, based off of her experience. You know. They attempted to kill Sir Reginald. They attacked the house. They took them hostage. They tied them up. They kept going on about how they wanted to kill Sir Reginald. But I like how the doctor is like. There has to be more to it. There has to be more to it. Because it sort of gives that. Sympathetic side of him. That we saw. And it kind of reminded me of Enemy of the World yeah and yeah. how the second doctor wouldn't just go along with who who we would consider consider to be the good guys yeah exactly. like, even though like Astrid or whatever he got on quite well with he still wouldn't do what they asked of him without knowing more i think that really carries through here
1: i, I think it's like when you're like you're told like there's an absolutism that some someone has to die for the benefit of something or other it's mm. not that someone must be defeated or someone must be removed from power or whatever but it's when someone must be killed yep. there's an absolutism there that he like he knows when something's an absolute as we talked about you know way back when we discussed the aztecs
0: mm.
1: versus something that's potentially in flux such yep. as the Dalek invasion of earth
0: mm. um the trike though like i mean <laughs> it would have been faster if you guys just run or walked briskly like I mean <laughs>
1: <laughs> It reminds you of The Simpsons when uh, Sideshow Bob uses the Wright Brothers ex- plane <laughs> to escape and it's just like the pilots are there walking slowly behind it Yeah
0: um, Yeah no I, I like the Doctor this one like I trying to think of anything negative there, um, is,
1: there is one negative I agree with a lot of what you're saying there because mm. I have it there Like, and I like as well like how his act of kindness you know comes good in the yeah. sense of the controllers like you spared me, and like the like I'll talk about the controller when he gets to it, but mm. he's like just like you know fuck it, prove prove me right. Mm. Um, but I get that he was possibly trying to keep Joe Cam, mm. but he doesn't need to fucking mock her intelligence in order to do that. So you know when like they're tied up and he's like oh like you probably just like to ask a lot of fool questions mm. and just like. Come on, like I just like I I thought we were kind of fucking past the point where like you have to, that you know, like you know that she's intelligent and like you know, okay, if you want to like start kind of poking fun at her for the whole there's ghosts in the house thing, absolutely fine. But why is that you... fine? I think based on the end of the de- the demon slash demons or whatever, mm. there there is a thing where it's like okay, you know, because he said oh maybe there is some magic in the world after all, mm. so like. He he can still kind of claim that, like, he you was know, superior, fucking, like, high ground for that. But she can also kind of point out, can your science explain, like, this spooky shit? I'm no, but why?
0: Of. You said it would be okay if he was just making fun of her over the ghost thing. Why would that be okay?
1: Because in my head, it's a bit between them, the same way that you and I have.
0: Well, see, you know, the way I saw it was that her questioning him was a bit between them, because later on, when she does get the mouth through, I was like, cool, now it's time for my questions. I saw that bit as a bit, whereas I think my one slight negative was like he was a little bit. Um, I don't think it was intentional at all. Um, but he's a little bit oblivious to just how freaked out she is
2: mm.
0: at the yeah. notion that the house is haunted. Yeah. Um, which I didn't particularly like, but then again, it was completely unintentional, so I didn't mind. And then when we got to that point. You know, he was like, okay, come on, use your escapology. You know, come on, come on, like, let's... Yeah. You know, but I saw that as being the bit and the other part as being oblivious as opposed to the other part being the bit and this being mean.
1: I, I, I don't know what it was. It was just like, I was just like, it's not like we're, we're going to discuss the arc in space. Hmm. Where like, that's like motivation to do better. Now it's a bit of a fucking prickish motivation <laughs> to do better. Whereas here it's just like, it kind of it kind of comes out of nowhere for just for me anyway
2: yeah. okay
1: but um but you no know, again like i the other thing is as well as i said like you know we talked about the absolutism like and he refuses to do it it's like he even says it's like you know with your means i oh, know with your ends yes i agree with your means no i don't
0: mm.
1: and that's what he says to the rebels like you know like i'll help you but like i'm not going to kill someone like we there has to be another way to change the outcome
0: and this is an interesting thing when you consider it in the context of the times. Yeah, you know, this came out in 1972. Mm-hmm. If you think about the British mindset at the time, you—I mean, this is the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of a rebel faction performing what too many are considered terrorist actions. Yeah. I think having the doctor come down on the side of I agree with what you want, mm-hmm. but I don't agree with how you're doing it. I think is a very interesting way of portraying that because it could have been very easy to make the gorillas purely, yeah, evil. I think th- the gorillas in this sort of remind me of like Kira Narise from D. Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Kira yeah. was a terrorist. Yep, that is fact. <laughs> However we sympathize with kira because the Cardassians were assholes
1: yeah and so we
0: understand why she was doing what she was doing i think the gorillas kind of come across the same Hmm. but it's like
1: the same with a lot like you know people always say about you know if you want to put moses into a historical context yeah he's the liberator of his people but for like the egyptians he was a terrorist yeah Yeah, Um, i
0: like the way the doctor sort of doesn't Give in to the violent nature of it, but still sort of says like there are times when you have people doing violent thing, violent things for understandable reasons. Yeah, Do you know, I, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting way for him to address it.
1: Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I agree. Mm. Shall we move over to Joe?
0: Yes, I feel for Joe here. Um, Joe is an incredibly trusting person. Mm -hmm. She also takes a lot of things at face value. So the gorillas let's face it, the gorillas had no issue with tying her up. They had no issue with threatening the doctor. Mm -hmm. They had no issue with waiting to kill um, Styles or whatever. It is completely understandable that from her point of view they are evil thugs. Mm -hmm. And then she meets the controller who A. agrees with her on that so thereby reinforcing her belief is kind to her feeds her chats away with her seems to have a very congenial way about him when talking to her I think it's I feel for her because she got duped and used yeah and even when the doctor is calling the controller out on his behavior Joe after like why were you like that to him like he he's been nothing but kind to me and whatever, and like I've, I've been in that situation. myself. I think that's probably why I feel for her. Where I've known people who I never had any issues with them; they were lovely to me. Mm-hmm. Only for me to find out later that they were horrible people to others. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay then. So I kind of feel for Joe in this one. Um, I do like though how her her escape Escapeology does come up, um I noticed that you know she didn't get the doctor and herself out of it, but when she was just tied up by herself while the doctor was on the phone, she did manage to get out of it mm-hmm. um which was great, and I like that we see her screaming being used as a distraction on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that was good. I enjoyed that, that I always
0: good. love when we have cause I think we think that's happened once or twice before um but i do I do always love when we have a stereotypical screamy character. Whose stereotypical scream is used deliberately?
1: Yeah, I think as the, a distraction. The, Did best example, do it? No, I think the best example of it is Susan. You know, I can't remember what story was in, but she's screaming and then she just gives a subtle wink <laughs> at, at the camera. Like, is it the Daleks? It might be the Daleks. I can't. I can't Maybe. remember what story it is.
0: I don't know. But I I love when that happens because unfortunately, a lot of the classic characters are just seen as being the screamer but i love the idea that in the universe they know they scream a lot
1: (laughs) i think that comes from like i would say about maybe roughly three quarters of the time whenever you see a picture of victoria Mm. it's the still image from the ice warriors where she's got the hands cup in her face and she's screaming Mm. so that's your impression of victoria um and like it's kind of like the same it it, it, like is it is like a thing of course like in order to get a it's you sorry to when they talk about like the whole hiding behind the sofa aspect Mm. that's the go-to it's the female character's reactions to the fucking spooky you know Mm. um what you said about the doctor you know his stance on like the met the methods and um, the goals of the terrorists or yeah. the the gorillas i think like joe is like a really this is a great example of like the character bringing you through like you're being the gateway for you into this world As like if you think about it right joe is you can kind of say that she's in a sort of a maybe gilded cage slash ivory tower Like even say take her from her own time where yeah. you know she's working for the un no, we don't really see a whole lot of the real world going on. Like this is actually, a, I think this is a nice character from Mind of Evil, where there is the peace talks and yep. you've got the Chinese delegation. So, like, but the whole concept of what's happening in the real world doesn't really come up on a day-to-day basis in each story of Doctor Who. Hmm. So, you've got Joe's life there as a UNIT agent, uh working alongside the Doctor, and then you see. The, the terrorist faction or whatever but when she arrives in the time zone that the terrorists are from she's immediately in a in an ivory tower like so yes. all she's seeing is the people being nice and all that kind of stuff so obviously yeah that's her distorted worldview but when she goes into the flip side it's night nice, and now i'd say the doctor helps with this reversal of the mindset but you can see then where it's like she does go with the flow a lot like, and she's, like, talking about, you know, like, but I can't imagine, like, that someone like Sir Reginald would do such a thing. Mm. And, like, she gets to see a huge, like, she gets a great education in this um, story, I think, in terms of, like, judging stuff based on the worldview or judging books by cover. Also, how um, coincidence can have, like, a huge ripple effect or actions based on a coincidence can have a huge ripple effect throughout time.
0: Yeah, I think with Joe, like you commented there, I think even we see it even in the stories that she's in in her day to day. And we've commented on how it's not a good thing, you know. But even the Brig, Yates, the Doctor Benton, Lasso, um, only at the orders of the others, they try to protect her from everything,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. She's always left behind. they try to keep her away from the dangerous things as much as possible. So I think you're right. Think this is a big eye-opening moment for her. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think the doctor is very patient with her in trying to guide her through it. You know, he doesn't call her an idiot or anything like that. He's very patient in guiding her through it and helping her to see things from the other point of view.
1: And it was great to see him being so jaw focused on... You know, like, like his priorities in this story were find Joe and then deal with the Daleks, not yeah. deal with the Daleks and then find Joe. Yeah. So I like again, I,
0: improvement over ambassadors.
1: Yeah, and again, like as well, like I like seeing the true character line of like even though like she's had her experiences with the uh, with the demons and she knows that certain aspects of the supernatural can be explained away by science, there's still the there's still the aspect of it that always remains there.
0: I think like she asks him, Do you, you know are ghosts real? And he's like, Well, there are different types of ghosts, and that doesn't help at all. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it doesn't. Because he, Ca-
0: he didn't say no.
1: Yeah. We all know Casper, like, okay, that's one type, that's the friendly ghost, but what about? <laughs> um And then I suppose the the brig?
0: Poor Alistair. He has to put up with so much shit. <laughs> hmm.
1: I don't know how your thoughts on this, right? But there's a there's a scene where it's like he's clearly pulled an all-nighter because he mm. opens the door and he comes into the, like I suppose like what is it like, the war room or whatever yeah. it is, and like he's still in his uniform, he's like tie you know undone, you know fucking blouse open, the uh, top you know shirt button undone. There's just something about that that just adds to his character.
0: Do you know what it Because then he asks for the coffee and he's told that the yeah. canteen is closed. Of course, it again it really goes back to Mind of Evil again. Because one of my mm. favourite bits of him in Mind of Evil was him asleep at his desk. Yeah. And the fact that clearly Corporal Bell or whatever her name is had come in, had pulled the curtains and just left him to sleep. But I think I think that's what we see here as well. Like He's under a lot of pressure and I know we're not going to be talking about um The boys. Styles. No, Styles on his own. But like, Styles treats him kind of like shit. Hmm. In this you know, like, and clearly, the brig is very well, like you sense that, like his dedication to the peace talks to the conference over it's not just a job, like he cares because he's human, and the possible negative effects of these talks falling through it you're not just getting the military reaction from him, Joe, hmm. you're also getting the personal reaction from him that 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 was my read of it, do you know like. Alistair cares, not just the Brigadier.
1: Yeah. And like, there's one other thing that... Um, no, this could be me reading way too much into things. But I for me, I think the concept of a a world war mm. stresses some out more than the concept of an interplanetary war. Yeah. Because it's it goes against, I suppose, the ideals of the United Nations.
0: I think it goes against the ideals of the United Nations. And I think part of it as well is if another world war was to break out. Mm. You know, we see it in the story that leaves Earth open. If he mm. has to try and be a soldier for the UN on a planetary war side of things. Mm. Who protects the Earth from the interplanetary stuff? yeah, Do you know, and as well, like when he describes you know a third world war, you can tell like how defeated he sounds at even the notion of it, Joe, <laughs> you know, we've said before that you know, while we didn't know it at the time, you and I have always felt that you know the brigadier was he came from a military family, like he's yeah. military all the way down. And yeah, this gets yeah. confirmed later on, but that's the point. You know, clearly his dad, or whatever, would have served in World War II. Mm-hmm. His granddad would have served in World War One. He knows the history. Mm-hmm. And I think he sees it as his job to do everything he can to stop it from happening again. Mm-hmm. And having to deal with people like Styles who don't listen to him, like, Styles says at one point, you're in charge of security, but then doesn't listen to him on a security matter. (laughs) Like, you poor bastard. (laughs) Like One thing I did love, though, because we we always talk about the brigadier leading from the front, and we did have a moment of that again this time around. Um, As soon as he hears the doctor being like, say to the marines, he's like, get me a jeep. Mm. I'm going. And he rocks up holding that, like, mounted machine gun or whatever. I'm like, go on, Alistair, you beast.
1: No, no, I, as as limited as his showing was, mm. it's just typical of what we come to see from the Brig.
0: Yeah, and I think I think you're right though. I think it's it humanized him a lot. Yeah. Um, which I, I'm really enjoying seeing. Like, I've always liked the Brigadier as a character, mm. but like, I'd never seen the Mind of Evil before. We watched it for this. I've never seen this story before. We watched it for this, and so I like the fact that through these earlier stories of him we're getting to see more of him as a person
1: and like you're also the you're, because we started off as well at the web of fear you're getting to see him throughout his entirety mm. of the show yeah so like you're not just getting like tom's golden era with yeah. like the last or just him break.
0: with liz which i still love and will love forever yeah but you kind of understand how he got to be that way yeah. with liz and i'm still wondering you know has anyone found the story that describes what happened to Jimmy? Because yeah. clearly that traumatized that man forever.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, cool. So now we have the prominent characters. Yeah. So um, you've got
0: the gorillas and the controller. Yeah. So don't you do gor- gor- gorillas first? Yeah. Go- Every time gorillas. I hear the word gorillas, I just think of Tarzan.
1: Yeah. Gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this is where I think my first recollection of a huge difference between portrayal in the book comes into effect, right? Mm-hmm. Because via the via the televised story, there there's nothing really development wise from any of them. Like they all fit into like the typical tropish characters of dashing leader or feisty female second in command you know, the antagonistic muscle of the group and then there's just the other guy mm. who happens to be Shura in this. So whereas in the book Shura is like he he's delirious because of his injuries. Like the the Ogron really mm. fucked him up. Mm. Like I think he, he gets a concussion, he gets like a broken collarbone, and but he and he go he he goes into the rail tunnel and he falls asleep and then he wakes up and his whole thing is like he's got to get onto the, got to do the mission, got to do the mission. And he's in a sort of like a fugue state of like a, or a fever state. And you have a lot of his internal monologue. that He has to complete the mission. He has to do the thing. And like, you're kind of like Jesus Christ, will someone please find him in the cellar and stop him from blowing up the the thing. Mm. And unfortunately, that's like that is like one of those aspects of where it's like yeah i can imagine to entertain can be like a uh, upset with that aspect of it so yeah th- there's just no real development for any of them here and it's like we don't get any real scope as to how desperate things are for the guerrilla faction like
0: the closest we see is the fact that the doctors describe it like, there's women and children in the factories and yeah that's it
1: and, like, uh, when Boaz dies trying to save a gnat, like, we don't see any follow-up to the impact of his death. Like, we don't have a gnat, you know, like, fucking kind of going, no, shoot him, shoot him, or, you know, they killed whoever. Like, it's... Do you remember when we went to see Rogue One? Mm. and we And we watched it, and we were like, and at the end we said, that really helps build the stakes for A New Hope. Now yeah. we know just how desperate things are. mm um so here with this story it's like i i I think that this is a story that maybe should have been a six-parter there should have been Mm. something more to kind of get it get the stakes up you know
0: there is an interesting thing about this and i wanted to wait and see what you thought about our guest characters before i brought this up is why i didn't mention it in trivia yeah paul bernard isn't a car isn't an actor's director hmm and apparently he didn't really give a shit how they said their lines. So long as they said them. And apparently there was a couple of times where um, there was one particularly the guy who played Shura when he was taking out the bomb and getting it ready. And he had in his head how this was going to be. And he'd kind of come from, a lot. a lot of BBC actors come from the stage originally. Right? So he yeah. had an, his head, he got into the character and he was doing the whole thing and Paul was like, what the fuck are you doing? Just do what's in the script. Do you know? And Terrence Dix had said the line that Shura says at the end which is you know, not this time or whatever. Terrence had kind of imagined that in some ways a bit like Picard in First Contact. This far no further That's sort of, you know, not this time. You know, this sort of impassioned speech. And instead, it's like, not this time. It's like mumbled, almost. Mm -hmm. And apparently, that was just the director was like, cool, cut, move on to the next thing. He was a director who was very focused on style. Um, He was very focused on cinematography and that type of thing. He wasn't really focused on the character. So I wonder if you'd had a more character-focused director, maybe someone like Barry you know, who, you know, gets the character side of things or some of the other directors we've had in the past. I wonder if, even if they didn't do all the things in the book, even if they didn't, dis- you know, describe people in the same way that they were in the book, I wonder if it wouldn't have felt as jarring for you if there had been more time and focus put into the performances.
1: Probably. And you said there about, like, you know, his whole thing was maybe, like, style. mm sorry man, you even failed at that because like if you were hoping for spectacle with this story, there's no spectacle.
0: Well I mean style is in um style so technical is the word oh, I think. Okay, all right, yeah. So um yeah. how to get everyone in frame and do the stuff that you Okay, need to
1: do. okay, yeah, I get you now get you know. Um yeah, no, it's just like like we've seen like even if you want to go to the space museum, mm. like, you know, granted, we had our differences of opinion on that story, but due to the caliber of the actors, like, I mean, like Jeremy Bullock and the other guys that were, um, who was it? Even like, um, you got to played Ben. I cannot remember his name for the life of I me mean, now. I feel really, really bad, but his brother, do you remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like they really got across the point just like, you know, how bad it is for their species, you mm. know? So, I just, like, yeah, I, I, I just missed it here. I, I yeah. just wanted a small bit more.
0: Yeah, I think, for me, the performances were... In fact, the one who plays that, mm. um Anna, she was very good, mm. generally speaking. I think it would be nice if she'd been given more to do and given more chance to react. But apparently, and again, this is according to Barry Letts, she kind of was able to kind of just do her own thing. And it still came out quite well, whereas the others being left their own devices maybe didn't. But she had done more TV, whereas the others hadn't. Um, The others had done a lot more stage and they hadn't done TV as much. And without the proper direction from Paul, it just sort of floundered a bit, I suppose. Hmm. But I think what was interesting to me about the guerrillas is that I did equate them in many ways to the Bajoran militia. Um, or more accurately to the Bajoran insurgents from Deep Space Nine and Kira in particular in that because they're very much going for a needs of the many type thing Mm. and it's interesting to think that without knowing 100% what happened without knowing what the ramifications would be that they would commit to killing this person outright yeah and they don't seem to have put a whole lot of thought into it. It's just go there and kill him. Um, Bearing in mind that all they have to go on is that he arranged the talks in his house. And then the house blew up. Yeah. And they took those three pieces of information. And created this narrative that he tricked everyone to his house. And blew it up killing himself. I think that's a bit of a leap.
1: But that's very interesting, right? And I think it's it's more so to do with the age we're living in now,
2: mm.
1: where depending on where you get your source of information from, yep. the facts are highly distorted. Mm. So like, obviously, the, the, the big thing here was that the Chinese uh, delegation were the ones that were having the most issues with stuff. Yep. And we're in a time like where when the show is being made, you have the, the 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 dual threat, I suppose, of China and Russia, and mm. we're in the Cold War era. So, and like, I loved as well, like they they talk about like how in South America, like you know, these other little uh, these nations are like waging war against their rivals. Mm. Um, and it's like okay, the book said that Styles was the one that started this, but where where did that book come from? Like yep. where where like, where did you get that?
0: Because yeah, if they're going to mess with history.
1: Yeah, because I can't really imagine, like, because it's still like the, the 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 location of the twenty second century is still in England, mm. so I can't really imagine like a British history textbook painting themselves as the instigator of a fucking global world, you know, global war.
0: No, but you, what I could actually, I actually, maybe could. You know, if you imagine, you have. People who were against the talks, hmm. or you have people who, um, you know, were direct, you know, the opposition party, as it were. So saying it's his fault.
1: Right. And like, yeah. So I suppose even in like, again, that actually goes to my point of the whole, it depends what paper you're reading. Yeah. Because you've got people that read the Daily Mail, then you've got people that read the Guardian and people that read the Telegraph. And it's like, yeah. same, same story, but disparate views on who's at fault here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, time travel stories are re- like like this. Are mm. they're really cool? I like them. Yeah.
0: Uh, then we have the controller. Who? Mm-hmm. Okay. Paddy, you know this about me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Name a character from a well-loved childhood musical that I am terrified of.
1: Birth the lamplighter from Mary Poppins. <laughs>
0: He comes in second.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang.
0: It is. I will tell you something. The Candyman from Willy Wonka actually does come in very close second. And there's a reason why, right? He has maybe three scenes in the entire thing. Two scenes in the entire film. But in the first one, he's fucking creepy. Because they do the whole song and then all the children disappear into, like, they disappear into his house.
1: (laughs) Never to be seen again.
0: It's fucking creepy, right? (laughs) And this is the same man (laughs) and it's also creepy. Because in here, in this story, we have him being kind of what we're used to seeing from any characters that interact with Daleks. You know, very stiff very regimented and even like the women that were in that base holy shit their directing was shocking they're Um, very
1: robotic very very, very robotic
0: robotic. do you know they were almost talking like the daleks which is really weird um but he's not as extreme as them but he's still in that very robotic nature when the minute joe turns up and he just turns on the charm Oh no, it's fine. Sit in my chair, whatever. And he's laughing with her later on, and like it just comes across as so fucking creepy. And it probably doesn't help that. And this could just be the studio lighting. It looks like he's constantly sweating.
1: See, I I raised this point there, like just um, when we were off air, like all the humans that work for the Daleks look like they have an iron deficiency because they're mm. very very pale.
0: Yeah, I hadn't noticed the pale thing Or the blue nail thing Was the other thing you mentioned Yeah I hadn't noticed that I noticed that it looks like He's constantly sweating
1: I think that's the thing though Like with studio lighting Because I think in A lot of um, Shots in This particular area When they're in the studio They do look like They are sweating
0: Yeah But it just adds to it Because yeah. he's being That sort of Like a man in a van Offering you sweets <laughs> He's being child catchery or like candyman, man <laughs> shop yeah. man-y. And it's, I, I,
1: it's the fact that he's all so dressed all in black as well. doesn't yeah. really help matters.
0: Um, but like as a person, like he is someone who clearly, um, from what we see anyway, his family has been controllers for generations. Yeah. He is king of the ants.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he loves being king of the ants. Mm-hmm. What I was waiting for at the end was his sort of general hocks reveal. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because at one point the leader of the gorillas i've forgotten his name um uh, mania mania he said that they had a contact inside control yeah and i thought they were going to reveal that the contact inside control was actually the Uh, controller controller. yeah and that's why he went and spoke to your man about production numbers being low
2: Mm.
0: as a sort of hey if you don't cop on i will have no the daleks will make me i know it's you they don't know it's you yet
1: i i also was waiting for like that you know 11th hour reveal that he is also a member of the resistance
0: Mm. because like we get him letting the doctor go and kind of like like you said doing the whole like you know prove me right Mm. type of thing but i was waiting for like you know like in um Rise of Skywalker were hawks like it was me I was the one yeah. that was feeding you the information I was kind of half waiting for that because it just seemed like that was the natural progression of where that was going
1: yeah he like, I, he, he kind of like there's a small bit of like um oh um oh my god he, I'm blanking on his name and I had it there like two seconds ago uh dude from ds9 the Taylor garrick garrick yes thank you there's a small bit of garrick and Gull,
0: Garrick,
1: a uh, small bit of garrick and gold ducat mm. to, to kind of vibe to him um like for me i think he was probably the most enjoyable character in this story from a performance yeah. standpoint um like he's very intelligent mm. because you know it's like he uses deductive reasoning to find out the potential traitors and where they're based because he goes, don't just show me the, um, the computer readouts. I want to review this for myself. Yeah. Um, and he also realizes that like uh, in a world with an all powerful regime, you still catch more flies with honey. Mm. Like he, and as you say, like he kind of goes from the Dalek esque way of speaking to very, you know, man of the people you know with joe here have some more grapes here have some more you know wine all this type of stuff um i have to wonder though if his life was spared by any other means like okay we'll say that he has that conversation with the doctor you know like everything Mm -hmm. have everything happens in accordance. but rather than the doctor sparing his life Mm -hmm. or getting the rebels to spare his life like he's out of the room he's somewhere else and the rebels rescue the doctor and joe and they just flake away would he still have allowed the Doctor and Joe to go back into the past, based on their conversations?
0: I don't know. That that's the interesting thing because that was the turning point for him. Yeah. Um, but which I think was not only that the Doctor asked them to not kill him, but the fact that they went along with it. Like he is their arch nemesis, and they didn't kill him. Yeah. So I don't know if he would have.
1: Because, like, the like. He like he said he made it a point to kind of say like you know we as controllers have made sure that humanity has some semblance of life.
0: Yeah,
1: I was like, okay, no, is that what you firmly believe,
0: mm.
1: or are you just using it to using it as a sort of a fucking screen to for the fact that you you actually enjoy being in power?
0: Yeah, like you know we talked about you know who he corresponds to in Deep space nine. Do you know? Um, another character that he kind of reminds me of in some ways is Gaeta from Battlestar Galactica. Yes. During the... Co-
1: the, the, the colonial uh, um, occupation.
0: During, New Ca- during the occupation of New Caprica. New Caprica, yeah. Where you had Gaeta trying to work from the inside, but still was tried as a collaborator. Yeah. And he kind of reminds me a bit of Gaeta in that respect. That he, I think with Gaeta, you know, it wasn't quite as bad. It didn't run for quite as long. But I think the controller had grown up in an environment where he was told he was doing what was best for humanity. Yeah. And he believed it 110%. And he wasn't trying to be evil.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, it's just. But that's the thing. It's like humanity, like what you know humanity to be right now. Hmm. If you were like, and with all the wealth and everything that you have, or you know, wealth, you know, but you still have a boot at the back of your neck. Mm. If you're told that everything can be changed, and you like, you obviously you're not going to realize it, Mm. but you could grow up in a world where like none of this shit happens. It's like, are you going to help or are you going to hinder?
0: Yeah. An interesting thing what did you think of the acting for him? Because I I think the fact that he was able to turn on a dial was very disconcerting and stuff.
1: I think that he is probably, for the guest cast, he is the best performance hands down.
0: Barry hated it. Really? He thought it was too overdone. That a lot of his acting was as if he was acting on a stage where you have to project. And he thought it was too overdone.
1: But well, like, even in, like, he, like the only other thing I've seen him in is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm. And even then, he's like, he's one of those guys that likes to kind of roll the R's a small bit and like, mm. really likes to enunciate each word. I just thought that was his particular style.
0: Yeah, no, it seems, it seems Barry wasn't a big fan of it, but I actually quite enjoyed his performance. Mm.
1: I I, um, I think it was, like as I said, it was the best performance from everyone, hands down.
0: Yeah, I think your one who played in Nash would probably come second for me. Hmm. Um, because I think knowing, particularly knowing the fact that they had very little acting direction, I think she yeah. handled her own fairly well with that. She, she did. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that that Barry wasn't a fan of the performance.
1: <laughs> oh. uh, before we go on, Michael Craze is the name of the guy that played Ben. Yes, I just remembered it there.
0: Uh, I was, I was getting Michael Craze and Fraser Hines confused. Yeah, I was like Michael Phrase. That's not a fucking thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mike <my>, Michael Phrase. <laughs> So we now go on to the undisputed villains of the piece. So we have the Ogrons and we
0: have the Daleks. Who do you, you mean we have first? the proto-Klingons? And by proto-Klingons, I mean the proto-next-generation Klingons. And by proto-next-generation Klingons, I mean dumb proto-next-generation Klingons.
1: <laughs> I've actually labelled them as Planet of the Urukai Klingons. Because their armour looks like the gorillas from Planet of the Apes. And they also look like a mix between Urukai and Klingons.
0: They, they do indeed. Yes. Um, I would have liked to have seen more from them. Um, unfortunately, because of the way the Daleks have to move in open fields, which is slowly. Mm-hmm. And because of how that motorized trike went like three miles an hour. And you could tell it was three miles an hour. They come across really badly. Do you know? I don't mind them being of perhaps limited intelligence. Yeah. In comparison to humans and Daleks or whatever. I don't mind that so much. But they're meant to be intimidating, and they're meant to be fear-inducing. But they run like a toddler. <laughs> like... But like,
1: and that's the thing is like again from the book, I was let down because, like, the the portrayal of them here is very inconsistent. So like, if we're meant to believe that the the trike is mm. fast, they're fast enough to keep up with it. But then when they come back into the 20th century, they're like, even though there's a lot of them, they're all like lumbering clods. Mm. Like, okay, I get for the 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 what the impact of the visual was meant to be that they're walking side by side with the Daleks. Mm. But Jesus Christ, lads, like, you're under fire. Surely you'd have like enough guys to fucking run forward. Cause you've proven yourselves in accordance with what we've seen with the trike to be fast enough to cover the ground. We've all, and also as well, that like the doctor can take one of them on very easily until he can't. Mm. And like that was a thing where it was like, I remember when the, when he meets the very first, uh, Ogron in the book, he tries to do his Venusian Nikido, and he, uh, he basically describes it as hitting like a brick wall mm. in the sense of he bounces off it. And, I, I think like in the book they're described as more gorilla like mm. so again like you i've i l i like the idea i actually preferred them to the the robo men and even though i i i think i mm. yeah i liked i like the robo men i prefer this aspect of stuff like them as a you know, a fucking hired muscle type thing mm. um but they were just really inconsistently presented here
0: yeah and then we have the Daleks themselves. Now, one mm-hmm. thing I will say is, I think I've discussed it before, I don't like it when the Daleks have minions. Yeah. Daleks shouldn't need minions. Um, But in this case, they only had three Daleks, so, you know. What if
1: the Daleks had actu- the actual minions from Despicable Me?
0: I would hate them even more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How can
1: you hate the minions?
0: Oh, they're so annoying.
1: Uh-huh.
0: They were fine for one film. Then it became too much. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, back to the Daleks. Um again, I'm gonna quote from the DVD here. Barry Letts was very upset with how the Daleks were presented. Hmm. Like this this had ten million viewers. Which is insane. Nowadays that would be like front page news if you had ten million viewers watching live. Yeah. And he's like, 10 million viewers to watch three Daleks. And he made the point that he's like, had you shot it better, you could have made it out that there were 15 Daleks, 20 Daleks. If you think about the chase, or if you think about da- any other time we've seen Daleks, the chase in particular, where they were all coming out of the <laughs> time yeah. ship, which was the same three guys who's running around in a fucking circle <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: until they decided, okay, that's enough. And then just. The guy didn't go back to the back of the line. Or
1: in the original um, screen caps from Power of the Daleks, you just have a painted backboard with them kind of like in ranks.
0: Yeah. Like there's ways that they could have made them more. However, right. I've said it before. You and I try not to judge the story too much on the financial limitations of the time.
1: Mm-hmm, that is very true.
0: I think this is a little bit of financial limitation and poor directing, if I'm honest.
1: I I'll, I'll definitely put my hands down to the poor directing financial mm. limitations. Like as I said, there's an awful lot of characters here. There's an awful lot of extras. Like, because mm. if you think about, it, there's a huge contingent what? of unit troops, huge contingent of of Yeah, contingent but o.
0: Daleks are expensive to make.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But like uh, in
0: terms of the Daleks side of things. Yeah.
1: Yeah, specifically. Um, um.
0: What I find interesting with the Daleks are is how they choose to use time travel because Daleks have had time travel since the Chase. Mm-hmm. Which was years ago, <laughs> yeah. in you know nineteen seventies time. Um, but I find it interesting that they mastered time travel, and they decide, do you know what, we failed to take over Earth in twenty
1: one. F- was it, it sixty four? In the t- in, in the in in TV story, I think it's sixty four. Okay, 64.
0: Um, so they they failed in that endeavor. Um, and so they decided to go back and to find a moment in time that they can take advantage of. And I find it very interesting. It makes me wonder if the reason why they didn't let the controller go with the guerrillas is because they knew what started the war. And they were just waiting for confirmation that this was the right point in time, this is the right event that kicked it off. And they couldn't have the controller go back in case he figured it out and stopped it.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So that's why the guerrillas always went. It's why in the end they went themselves and they were like, the house has to blow up. Because if the house doesn't blow up, the war doesn't start, in their minds. Um, so I think that's a really interesting idea because it also shows that they haven't really understood time travel. In many ways. Do you know? That they took advantage of one particular moment in time. But then they're trying so desperately to hold on to it. Yeah. And to make sure that it happens the exact way they want it to happen. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was an interesting way for the characters to be done. I don't like them using the Ogrons. I don't mind them using the controller. That's fine. Um, I don't like them using the Ogrons. But I think when you consider the fact that this story was originally written without them even in it, hmm. they don't do too badly for being shooting at the end.
1: Yeah, because, like, it's it's weird, though, because, like, the the gold Alex says that humans are untrustworthy.
0: Yeah.
1: Yet he don't seem to have any qualms about using them to run your slave workforce.
0: True, but then they also have the ogrons as well. Hmm. Yeah. Like, th- like even the controller said, I need more human security forces. And they're like, hmm. No they have a few humans in key positions and that's it mm.
1: like yeah because like if you think about like in what was it in the Alec invasion of earth they just use the robomen which mm. they convert themselves and yeah so like here is a case of like okay we learned from the previous time so we will use a muscle force to oversee the human force that we have overseeing the human force
0: yeah, I mean, the Ogr- if we're going back to the fucking ds 9 analogy. The Olgrands here are a bit like the. Jemhadar. Um, the Jemhadar. But it made sense for the founders to use the Jemhadar. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense for the Daleks, except that they don't want to get their wheels dirty. No. I was—I was like,
1: would was say can't really say hands because they don't have hands.
0: So, I was going to say whisk. It's whisk or yeah. wheels. wheels. Um, that they don't want to be the ones who have to oversee everything. But the three of them sat in that room. That's essentially what they're doing. So yeah, I don't know. I think it was. <laughs> I think the Daleks were grand.
1: Yeah, but there's just nothing new from them here. No, like there is nothing new. And like I think, yeah, we we have reached the point where. Like, because I had said like that every time we saw the Daleks, I think up until probably Power and Inclusive Our Power, there mm. was all, they always brought something new to the table.
0: Although Evil had the big tool.
1: Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I had with the Dalek.
0: There yeah. we go. Yeah. Uh, I think in this one, I think the only thing that is maybe new is how they want to manipulate time, as opposed yeah. to just travel through it, like they did in the chase. Yeah. But since we've already seen them travel through time in the chase, I don't think it has as big an impact here. Mm.
1: I think this is a case of actually traveling through time to make a... Because, like, previously their attempts to travel through time were to kill the doctor.
0: Yeah, but then also do the human experimentation yeah, yeah. in Yeah, but, like, we're here but is like this, now this is actually of... trying to manipulate time. Yeah. Um, Which I think would have worked better if we hadn't already seen them use time travel twice before. <laughs>
1: Definitely. Okay, we've definitely got it working this time. Definitely.
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. Ah shit, they stole it. God damn it. So an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. Um I'm curious to see now what your overall score is going to be. So, in this section, we give our thoughts on the story as a whole. We give our score out of five.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Paddy, do you want to go first?
1: I would, indeed. So, first thing I must say, Yates is a prick. Uh, rank has its privileges. Rank will have my foot up your ass. He stole food from Benton, then acted as if it was nothing. Nothing.
0: Also, he treated Benton like shit.
1: He did. He fucking treated like, uh,
0: I... I yeah. would... Okay. Right. We didn't discuss Yates as a character, because Yates doesn't do much. All he does is that Stiff. RHIP yeah. bullshit. But, I've for, I don't like Yates. Mm. I would hate, imagine having to report to Yates. Yeah. Because he comes across as the guy who takes credit for all your ideas, and who treats you like shit.
1: And we've all worked with people like that at some point in time.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs>
1: um... But on to the actual story as a whole. So, as I said, I read the novelization of this years ago. And I have to say, the novelization is better than the televised version. Okay. Now, normally, in my experience anyway, I have seen television or film versions of pre-established books. Mm. And sometimes, I, I'll think, you know, sometimes the books are better and sometimes the movies and TV shows are better. Here is a case of where we have a novelization of a television or a film, mm. and the book far outshines it. Like we, you, you gave me the Crusades, and I loved it, and it added, mo- it added some very nice character moments, and added some very nice story points. But I wouldn't say that it was better than the television version because I thought the television version was was amazing.
2: Mm.
1: Here, I think that the book is the way to go for this particular story because it really gets across the struggle it, re- it actually really gets across like how shit life is in the 22nd century for humanity mm. as i said i love the fever state of you know sure like internal monologue i love that and just the daleks and the ogrons are presented as more of a trash and as you said like the, the big battle is is actually a big battle it's great um i love the concept of the story Mm. I really do. Like you get like some huge, there's just huge Terminator vibes from it because, you know, it, it, like, and I like how they explain how time travel works in the sense of you went back to ensure an event doesn't happen, and by ensuring it doesn't, by doing that, you've ensured that it does happen. Mm. They kind of even Terminator where Kyle Reese is sent back to per- protect Sarah and ends up conceiving John, the guy who sent him back in the first place. Mm. Um, so I, I like that. Thought the controller was a very interesting character. Uh I like seeing characters like him, you know the guys that are they're they're you know chaotic neutral <laughs> type thing um the rest of it and i liked I like the doctor, I like seeing you know he was like as you said, like enemy of the world, okay, I want all the facts before I make a decision as to what to do, and then it's I agree with the goal. I just do not like how you want to achieve that goal um And it's like, there was also a thing like there where we know that the doctor doesn't like violence. Mm. Or he doesn't, you know, it's, he acts in self-defense the majority of the time. And I often, I thought about that when, um, you know, he runs outside and he shoots one of the Ogrons. And it's like, okay, obviously it's in a scenario of self-defense. Yet he does pause and take aim.
0: That is another controversial thing yeah. in this story. So, again, Barry... Barry Letts didn't like that. Yeah. Because because of the way the Ogron's no it's meant to be the Ogron was going to attack the Doctor. Yeah. And the Doctor shot first. Yeah. In self defence. Because mm. he knows that those weapons will disintegrate you. Yeah. But it doesn't even look like the Ogron wastes his weapon.
1: <laughs> no, it, it it is like he does kind of stop and he does the whole squint eyed aim mm. shoot business. So I was like, that was not the best.
0: That was a misdirection. Uh, Yeah.
1: Um, So, like, I just think everything else was just very rushed and underdeveloped. Mm. So, I'm going to give this a 2.5 out of 5. Okay. So, how about your scoring of this story?
0: Terminator was a great movie. (laughs) This is a grand story. (laughs) Grand in the, eh, it's alright. Not grand in the big, over-the-top thing, because we've already established that's not. Um, I agree with you. Uh, Fuck you, Yates, you prick. It's interesting to see Doctor Who tackle time paradoxes in this way, because we haven't really seen this concept explored too much, hmm. if at all really up to now. Because if you think about the two examples I could think of that kind of lent into this were the Aztecs, mm-hmm. we can't change history, not one line, yeah. and the massacre where the Doctor just left with Stephen and was kind of like, there's nothing I can do about that. It happened.
1: What about the the Space Museum?
0: Yeah, I suppose the Space Museum is the only other time. That this, but that was a more controlled environment. Yeah. That wasn't them traveling through time to do something. That was, they were displaced from time. Yeah. Or is this the first time we actually see time travel? And yeah, it is essentially the Terminator type thing where they try to go back in time to prevent the thing from happening only to find out that they were the cause of the thing happening. Like you said it Reese went back to protect John Connor only to then father John Connor and because the Terminator was there and they destroyed the Terminator then if we go to the next movie in Terminator 2 they use the arm that was left from the original. Like blah, blah, blah.
1: So I just have a few trauma going from through my head now where like Fry goes back in time and accidentally kills who he thought was his grandfather, and then he ends up grandfathering himself. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I think that's an interesting thing for Doctor Who to play with, because they've always kind of veered away from paradoxes. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, a lot of people, you know, comment that like, you know, did Star Trek rip off the Cybermen when it came to the Borg? You know, um, you have the same thing here, like a similar type of story was done in it was outer limits or Twilight Zone or something, um, and the guy who wrote that ended up suing <laughs> uh, James Cameron <laughs> mm. for Terminator <laughs> because it was so yeah, fucking similar. Yeah. Um, and that didn't happen here. Um, the BBC never sued James Cameron because, as Terrence Dix makes the point that like this isn't a new concept in science fiction. No. It may not be one that was explored much on TV up until that point, but it's a long-running science fiction trope in mm. books for ages. So I think it's great that we're actually starting to see that in Who, because it's really starting to bring in this idea of fixed points.
1: Yeah, there you've got like you're bringing in terminology like temporal paradoxes and the Blinovich limitation effect.
0: Okay, yeah. Um. You know, all of that, I think, is really, really super interesting. Um, I do agree with the cast that the number of Daleks was a bit crap. The Ogrons weren't all that much better. I think the idea that the Daleks had, I thought that was interesting from a Dalek perspective of them taking their activities up to the level of manipulating time to meet their ends. Um, So not only can they travel through time, but they can now manipulate it to get the outcome that they want. I thought that was really interesting. I thought the controller was great. Um, I thought the doctor was very good. I thought the humanity of the Brigadier came across really well. But all together, and I, as we've discussed it, I've dropped it down. I originally gave it a three. Oh. They're like it's grand, you know, it's another oh. road. But really, the more we've discussed it, and I watched the making of after I gave it the score. Um, the directing is just so bad. Um, it's not the gunfighter's bad <laughs> with that fucking song, yeah. but like everything is just so flat. By a lot of the actors. Particularly a lot of the supporting cast. With the exception of the two that we've mentioned. Like Anat was good on her own. Relatively speaking. And the controller was fine by himself. But like the women who were working with the controller. Speaking like Daleks. What the fuck was that about? Yeah. Do you know the way the Ogrons moved? Even the way the Ogrons spoke. So the first time we see the Ogrons. Speaking to the controller. One of them speaks in a kind of stilted, Dalek-y type of way. Yeah. Which is meant to get across the fact that he's not fully <laughs> clued in upstairs. But then the second Ogron is like, no issues. And you could tell that he was like, I'm not fucking doing that.
1: Isn't he saying, I obey.
0: Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like, the first one was like very much, okay, they speak like the Daleks, which makes sense, because they're the Daleks fucking force. And the second one was kind of like, I'm not fucking doing that. And he just speaks like a normal fucking person.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just like, Why don't we tell them all those ogrons who sent on the other side of the moon came back super intelligent? I was like, no, I don't think we should be telling them that.
0: Yeah, so that I think was shit. And for that reason, I think giving it a three would be unfair to the other stories that we have ranked as a three. As a three. Mm-hmm. So like bearing in mind, Mind of Evil was a three for me. Clause of Axos was a three for me. Mm. And this doesn't really rank up with either of those. I think it's a good continuation of Mind of Evil. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Um, But I would agree with you. For me, this is a 2.5. And that may be being a bit generous.
1: Yeah, like, there are certain stories that we've covered, which is like, obviously, you know, when you see one of your favorite TV shows on television, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll, you know, sit down and I'll watch it. But obviously you're not, Like, there are some episodes in that show that you're not, it's like, nah, I'm good, I'll flip on. Yeah. I think Day of the Daleks might be one of those.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because a lot of fans really like Day of the Daleks. Hmm. It has the most commercial releases of any story. It was on VHS, it was on Laserdisc. I had multiple versions on VHS. It's on DVD and whatever. Um I just think that it was you know, the only thing I can chalk it up to is, no offence to Paul Bernard, it was poorly directed.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: And, you know, we've seen them make a dozen dialects out of three. Mm-hmm. We've seen them make the most random fucking alien creatures seem believable.
1: Like, we've even seen, like, a great fight sequence with a limited number of things in terms of, like, the mechanoids versus the Daleks.
0: Yeah. Or even, like, I was thinking about, like, the fight scene at the end. If you remove the Daleks from the equation. Yeah. No point shooting the Daleks. Just fucking avoid them. Hmm. Right? As in, that would be, if you only had the three Daleks, there's no point in the humans attacking the Daleks. Just avoid them. Right? But if you think about the fight between the ogrons and the humans like fucking ambassadors of death mm-hmm. the warehouse fight yeah that was fucking brilliant that was amazing like, that even... was that was the unit soldiers and like don't we like we've had great unit fights i was like where the fuck was that here like
1: and even if you want to go with um the mind of evil the gunfight in the courtyard yeah like yeah
0: we've seen examples of that like where was that here do you know and that falls on the direction i think um now like i said paul bernard does direct more the time monster and the frontier of space i haven't seen either of those so it's gonna be interesting for me to see if i have a different take on those from a directing point of view
1: yeah it'll be interesting to see how he works with roger delgado because roger delgado is in both of those
0: So, two point five first season opener. Uh, Where is that ranking? The Dominators was also two point five.
1: Galaxy Four was also Galaxy Four was
0: also two point five. Yeah, so it's tied for bottom
1: with bottom
0: with Galaxy Four and the Dominators. Would I say it's better than those two? Maybe, but still not great though.
1: And that's also interesting because we have a one from each doctor now. In terms we of do. we do, yeah.
0: we do. Um. Oh, actually, I'm I'm curious now. So that was season three,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then um,
1: season six. In season
0: nine <laughs> it's their third season <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> what the hell <laughs> and actually speaking of third season um this episode has has gone live on monday november the first one day after jodie Whitaker's final season has started this is true yes this is true. Season, season 13 it's a common yep which will be uh for our listeners it will be a long time coming <laughs> before you know, we reach five, that five years or <laughs> <laughs>
0: because
1: but, I, I but because uh, again i did like that you know count where it's like episodes versus stories so like i think we're we're actually at just past a t- uh a third of the way like, we've one third of the episodes uh covered
2: yay.
1: um so yeah two thirds left to go. but like we're still like way behind on stories because this is story number 60 out of 297 <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Jody, you're gonna be a while. <laughs> yeah. But what do we have next week, Patty?
1: So next week we have a trip off-world again for Joe, uh, where she gets to see a alien race with a funky hairstyle and a terrible secret in the Curse of Peladon,
0: which also has one of my favorite musical parts from all of Doctor Who.
1: Yep. <laughs> So to see all this, tune in next week.
0: Or to hear it, because no one actually watches us, but okay.
1: They, they can visualize. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. What
2: the fuck?